I've shared with some of you that I have uh, begun fasting. Um, this is a spiritual discipline that was largely unknown to me, um, as, as you can tell. Uh, and um, uh, what happened is uh, I, I was reading uh, this book. Um, uh, if you've looked at the bulletin board next door, you can see that, that a lot of my reading um, lately has been books on um, revitalization. And um, that's that's happened really since I became convinced that revitalization of this church is an, a, a matter of some urgency. And so since the summertime, I've been reading books like this. And I was reading this book, and um, all of the books, if there's one thing they've got in common, they say that, that any revitalization that's worth having will be the result of prayer. That That if you're trying to kind of build a better church and God's not involved in it, then you're wasting your time. But this book went further. Father Father Michael White, the writer of this book, The Story of a Catholic Parish Rebuilt. Um, Father Michael White, he says that, and then he says, and fasting. And I thought, ouch. So I have been fasting now for uh, probably almost six months, and what I do is uh, I, I fast from different things on different days of the week. So, for example, today I fast from coffee. And um, it's a good thing you're seeing me this time of day instead of later. Um, because I usually drink about a pot of coffee a day, and um, I feel it on Sundays. And that's really the point. The point is to feel it enough that it actually gives me a, a pause. That, that when I you know, go to the refrigerator to get some, some coffee or something, I say, whoops, today's my fast day. And it, it makes me stop and remember what it is that, that I believe that, that God wants to do with this church. And it gives me an opportunity to take a moment and pray. So I, I, I approve of fasting. But I think, um, like everybody else who has ever engaged in a spiritual discipline, from fasting to uh, uh, prayer to, to devotional reading to going on a pilgrimage, I think what a lot of us find ourselves tempted to do at some time or another is to say, how can I use this as a lever to align God with my purposes? Instead of saying, this is a mechanism by which God aligns me with his purposes, instead we say, how can I use this discipline in order to align God with my purposes? How can I get some leverage over God? How can I, how can I use this particular discipline to make God do what I want Him to do? And my guess is that you have found yourself tempted, at least, to do the same thing from time to time. That, that you found yourself with a, with a need, a good need, a compelling need, a legitimate, honest need that you wanted God's help with. And you found yourself saying, what can I do to make God help me? What can I do to make God help me? And, you know, you might think about things that, that have been situations in your, in your life. Somebody was sick, uh, somebody was in the hospital, and you were saying, what can I do so that God is obligated to answer my prayers? That there's this, this tendency where it quits being, I want to align myself with God's purposes, and it starts being, I want God to align himself with my purposes. And so maybe it's somebody's health. Maybe it's something going on in your life. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's, it's a family member who's ill. Maybe it's, it's more abstract. It's like, I just want to go to heaven when I die. I've got an awareness of sin. And Lord, take me to heaven when I die. Maybe it's, maybe it's more pedestrian sorts of things. Uh, Lord, you know, the situation at work. Um, I need your help there. And so I'm trying to figure out a way to get you to do what I need you to do. I've got a problem with my marriage, and I need you to fix it. I need you 
to fix it. Not because you want my marriage to be a success, but because I do, and I want you to get on my team. I didn't know they made them that loud anymore. So that's cool. Mine is like I can never hear it. So people say, I phoned you. Um, so anyway, um, so, uh, so we, we find ourselves in this position. And what we do often is we say to ourselves, okay, well, what will it take? What will it take? What, what levers do I have? So maybe it's fasting. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's some kind of promise of good behavior. You've ever found yourself saying, Lord, if you do this, then I will do that. The, you hear that the, the lottery is up to some hundred million dollars or something, and you say, Lord, if you send me a ticket in the mail since they don't sell them here, then I promise I will tithe. Okay? <laughs> okay. Easiest thing in the world would be for me to tithe. Um, so, so we find ourselves uh, promising good behavior. Lord, if you do this, then I will do that. I will go to church more often. I will pray more regularly. I will read the Bible every day. If you do this, if you get on my team, then the leverage we're trying to get over God is I will behave better in the future. Or maybe what we do is we point out how long and faithfully we have already served. Lord, I've been going to church every week. There's a bunch of those pagans that sit in the church next to me and they don't go and no elbows, please. They only show up once in a while. But I go, Lord, I go every week. And really, you kind of owe it to me because that's my lever over you, Lord. So we find ways that, that maybe not every day, but occasionally from time to time, the thought flits through our head. I could use that as leverage. I could, I could make God do what I want Him to do. So I think that that's pretty common. And, uh, uh, those are kind of some of the ways we do it. Maybe we ask somebody else. We say, well, look, I've got nothing, right? I've got no leverage. But you know what? I know somebody who is a prayer warrior. And if I could just get her to pray for me, so it's kind of this, a lever over the person who's got the lever, right? So, so we think, we think in those terms. So, so sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's, it's indirect, but we think to ourselves that I want to make God do what I want Him to do. And that's the problem we find ourselves in. And of course, the gospel doesn't tell us that there's any way to do it. And what I want to do is I want to illustrate something from the scripture today because it shows us two stories that might make us think there is some leverage that we could apply to God. But when you put the two together, it's almost as if Luke, in fact, I believe that Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to put these two stories together in this order because taken together, it becomes almost impossible to think that you could get leverage over God. So what I'd like to do is look through this section of chapter 7 of Luke. And I put an insert in the program so you can kind of Keep score, you know, you fill in the boxes, because you'll see these are some of the levers that we might think that that person has over Jesus. And so what I want to do is I'm going to fill in the one for the, or I encourage you to fill in the one for the Roman officer, and then we'll fill in the one for the widow, and we'll see how these two stories kind of talk back and forth to one another about the idea of leverage. So, chapter 7 of Luke's um, account of the gospel. So, uh, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all this, so he has just given what's called the Sermon in the Plain. He's done a lot of teaching there, but he's done teaching now. He's going to do some miracles. So Jesus finishes saying all this stuff, and he returns to Capernaum. Capernaum is his home base. It's the, the place he's been operating out of during his Galilean ministry. And at this time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. So that's the problem that needs to be addressed. 
And who is the person who has the problem? Well, obviously the slave has the problem, but so does the Roman soldier. For whatever reason, he cares about this slave. But he has assets, right? He is a Roman soldier. Rome is running this country at this point, and he's an officer. Uh, in, in some translations, they give his title as a centurion, which means he probably commanded somewhere up, uh, up, uh, somewhere north of, uh, above a hundred people. So at least a hundred people, a century of people. He was a centurion. So he's got, he's got a pretty big, uh, level of authority. And of course, Rome has all the authority in the world. It was the power in the world at the time. So Rome has all the power, and he exercises that power in the region of Galilee. So he has he has a support network. He's got slaves. He's got he's got soldiers who work underneath him. And if he needs help from above, he can put in a request and get support from above. He's got all the support in the world. So he's got a good support network, but it's not working in this case. His support network isn't working. The slave is dying. So he's got a good support network, but it's not enough. And so what does he do? When the officer hears about Jesus, the word has gotten around. There's this guy who's healing people on the Sabbath. There's a guy who's doing all kinds of amazing things. You should, you should see if he could fix your, 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 um, your slave's problem. So he says, okay, well, I can do that. But he says, there's a problem here. I'm a Gentile. Frankly, I'm a member of the occupying army. So I have no ability to, to get anything out of this guy. So how can I do that? What lever can I apply to Jesus? And so what he does is he sends these highly respected elders. It says he sends some respected Jewish elders to come and ask Jesus to heal his slave. So they earnestly beg Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, they said, he does. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So not only does he have a support network, but he has a great relationship with the people of God. Right? He's got those people. He can say, hey, can you put in a good word with me? And in fact, he does. He says, there's a wonder worker in your religion. I don't follow your religion, but you guys do. Go put in a good word for me. And they do. Now, maybe that's partly just practical politics. I'm not going to tell this guy no because, you know, things would not go well for me. But they say more than that. They say, they say he loves the Jewish people and he's generous. He gives to the purposes of God. He built a synagogue for us. He's got a lot of leverage, you would think. So the Roman officer has good relationships with the people of God, and he's kind of laid some groundwork by by having a lot um, that he has done in terms of good deeds, generous generosity, and things like that. So he says, if anyone deserves your help, he does. So Jesus goes with him. But before they arrive at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself for coming to my home. For I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. So he says, look, I know how this works. I'm a Gentile. You're a Jew. If you come to my house, you'll get in all kinds of trouble. Jews and Gentiles don't, don't intermingle. So just stay out there. My slaves will stay here and you can just heal him by remote control. That'll be awesome. Just do that. So he says, he says, do that. And then he explains how he knows that. He says, see, I've been watching you and I've figured something out. I don't, Judaism, you know, all this thing with your your God, I don't quite get all that, but I figured one thing out. He says, here's the deal. I am under authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. 
I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. If I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. And I figured out one thing about you. From the stories I've heard, from the reports that have come back to me, I figured one thing out, which is you have authority. And so I want you to use that authority to heal my servant. You don't even have to come into my house. All you've got to do is say it and it will get done. So, um, how do they ask? He's very polite. He's concerned for Jesus. He knows that if Jesus comes to his house to get in trouble, he asks very politely. More than that, he sends his friends. He's burning favors, right? He asks his friends to intercede for him. Um, and, and then what the message they deliver is, I'm not worthy. He doesn't say, we're equal, but I won't have you in my house. He says, he says, um, we're, we're, we're different and I'm unworthy. So he's asking about as nicely as you could possibly ask. And Jesus' response is, I have not heard in all of Israel such great faith. He says, um, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to the house, they found the slave completely healed. Notice what happened, though. He said, he said, you don't have to come to my house because you'll get in all kinds of trouble with the Jews if you do. So don't. Don't come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. But Jesus doesn't say the word. Jesus does nothing, and the servant is healed. Okay? They get back, and there he is. He's healed. So, Jesus doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to come to the house. He doesn't even have to say, I pronounce you healed. They just go back, and they find that the servant is healed. So, that's the first story. And there's a lot in there. You know, we think to ourselves, how could I get in this guy's shoes? How could I get chief leaders in the church to go to God and say, hey, help Luke with his problem. That would be awesome. If only I could figure out a way to do that. If they would say, not just help Luke with his problem, but if anybody deserves your help, God, it's Luke. That's a great testimony. You'd love to have people who could do that before God. So that's that's the problem with this one story. By itself, it leads to this idea that somehow you can get leverage, you can become a deserving person that God will help. But read the second story. It says, soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. Where is Nain? Nain is in Jewish territory. It's in the southern part of Galilee. So there's mostly Jews who live in this region. There's not many Gentiles. Um, so that, that's setting the, the, the stage. And it says, a large crowd followed him, and a funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. So Jesus is going into Nain as a funeral procession is going out. The Jewish law didn't allow people to be buried inside the um, the village gates. The burial grounds had to be outside the gates. So they're coming out. Jesus is going in. And it says, The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. So what's her story? Does she have a support network? Well, the whole point is that, no, widows didn't. And we cannot appreciate how bad the lot of a widow was in that era. They didn't have social security, okay? They didn't have IRAs. They didn't have life insurance. A widow was in real trouble if there wasn't a man somewhere around who could take care of her. And we learned, first of all, she's a widow, and now her son, her only son, has died. She has no support network. Now, there are some people who pity her, right? There's some people who have come out to, to wail at the funeral, but there's no indication in this story or really what we know of that culture that they would feel any obligation to take care of her. If anything, they would kind of feel, lady, you're radioactive. Things that touch you, I don't want to happen to my family. So they would actually tend to hold her at arm's length. 
from what we know of that culture. So she's got no support network. Her support network is being carried in the coffin. So it says, what is her, well, what is her relationship with the Jews? She is one. She's, she's from the village of Nain. We don't learn anything else about her. So she's almost certainly a Jew. So she's got a good relationship with the people of God. And maybe some of those people in the crowd will, will pity her. Maybe they will pray for her. They're probably not going to do much more than that though. And when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. That's the compassion I talked to the children about. It's a compassion. It's a deep compassion. It's gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. It makes your innards feel terrible. And it compels you to action. Jesus is moved with compassion. He says, don't cry, he says to her. Then he walks over to the coffin and touches it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you to get up. So Jesus is, uh, so how does she ask? How does she ask? She doesn't say a word. Nobody asked Jesus anything. He's coming into town. They're going out. Nobody has asked Jesus to do anything. And Jesus heals him anyway. Why does Jesus heal him? Well, because we read that Jesus is not amazed by this person's faith. We don't know anything about her faith. She may have no faith. But what Jesus is, is moved with compassion. So Jesus' response to the seeing the circumstances of the woman is compassion. And how does he heal her? Does he heal her by remote control? Heal the son by remote control like with a Roman? No. He touches the coffin. He touches the coffin and then he says, young man, I say to you, get up. So Jesus uses both a touch and a word of healing. So it's almost as if Luke has put these two stories back to back in order to illustrate that Jesus is slippery. When we think we can kind of get a hold of him here and make him do something this way, Luke has illustrated how slippery Jesus is. We read some, somewhere, the crowd tried to lay hands on him, but he um, uh, moved through them. This is the kind of thing Jesus does. Jesus is hard to get a handle on. You can't, you can't twist his arm if you can't hold his hand. So how do you do this? Well, look at what happens. Both people are healed. It says Jesus is uh, amazed by the person's faith and he is moved with compassion by the woman's tragedy. And Jesus heals both of them. There's a problem I think we have of leaving it there. We don't trust Jesus. I mean, we know he's good most of the time for most people, but this is important and I really need him to work on this. And so we want to know, can I somehow get leverage over him to go beyond trust? And all Jesus gives us is trust. But he's good. C.S. Lewis talks about the lion Aslan, the, the Christ figure in the books, the Narnia books. He talks about the Christ figure. He says, is he a tame lion? Is there some way you can put him behind bars and make him do what you want? No, you cannot. He is not a tame lion, but he's good. And so is Jesus. There's a troublesome passage of scripture I saw a couple of days ago in my reading. Um, in Exodus 33, maybe we've got it up here. Yeah. Jesus, uh, God says through to, to Moses, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And if somebody told you that, you would say, you're just being arbitrary. I want a rule, because then I can tell you you're breaking it. God doesn't give the people of Israel a rule. And Jesus doesn't give us any levers. He simply says, do you trust me? Do you trust 
that I am good? Do you trust that I will be gracious? Nothing in heaven or on earth can stop me from being gracious to those to whom I want to be gracious. And nothing in heaven or earth can keep me from showing mercy to those whom I want to show mercy to. That's a pretty good promise. But the condition of our brokenness is so much we want to say, yeah, but how can I trust you? How can I trust that that's the case? I grant it in the abstract, but in this particular circumstance, I want to know I can force you to do it. And God doesn't give us that. So, what do we do with this? The first one is repent of the idea that there is a lever somewhere that you can apply to Jesus. There is no lever. Jesus is slippery. There's nothing you can do to make Jesus do anything. So if you've got some idea that if I go to church more often, if I give more generously, if I do this, or because I have long for for years and years done that, I can make Jesus do anything. The answer is, no, you can't. Repent of it. But the other thing is to realize there truly are no restraints. The, The Roman soldier said, you can't come to my house because it would be bad for you. We see no sign in here that Jesus was ever going to stop at the doorway. Jesus was stopped by the group of friends. Jesus has already shown to the people, in, in as we saw last week, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is not concerned with the rules that people think apply to him. He says, I will be merciful to those to whom I will be merciful. And your door and cultural assumptions about Jews and Gentiles will not stop me. So if you think that there are limits, if somehow there are levers that are working on Jesus, just because you don't have any, that nevertheless there are some levers that are working on Jesus, he says repent of that too. There is nothing that can stop him from being generous or merciful or loving to those that he chooses to do so. God is sovereign. And lastly, ask yourself this. I'm not Jesus. I'm not sovereign. I am worked on by levers, and I have levers that I work. I'm like the Roman officer, right? I'm under authority. I understand how these things work. I've got some authority, and I'm I'm under the power of people who have authority. And I would ask you, what do you do with that? What do you do with the authority you do have? Is it aligned with the purposes of God? Because there's no way you can get God to align with your purposes. So maybe... You need to adopt a spiritual discipline. It's been helpful for me. Maybe fasting is the one that might work for you. Maybe uh, some people this time of year, they think, I need to take a pilgrimage. I'm thinking Hawaii, right? (laughs) But maybe there's a spiritual discipline that you should adopt because you need to align yourself so you can start using the leverage you do have for the purposes of God. Because I assure you, there is no way you're going to make God align with your purposes. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks that you are not a tame lion. You're not, you're not somebody we can work on, but you are someone who is good. You will be gracious to those to whom you will be gracious and nothing can stop you. And you will be merciful to those to whom you will be merciful and nothing can stop you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to align ourselves with your good purposes and to trust We don't need to leverage you. We only need to trust in your goodness. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.